morning. I am going to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 14 through 18 this morning. Uh, we are going to backtrack a little bit if you've been saying, hey, wait, we're, we're fat further along than, than chapter 16. But this was a message that uh, Devin had prepared a couple weeks ago when his daughter changed those plans. So luckily, we get to hear it. Again, we are in Luke chapter 16, reading verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Oh, magnificent Father, we thank you for the rich gift of your word to us. And we come before you humbly this morning saying passages like this are really hard, and they're hard to even understand as they're read. And it, it feels like confusing and, and disjointed, and we thank you for the gift of teachers that also can come alongside of us and teach us as a body and unpack scripture like this and make us richer for hearing it. So we, we pray in thanksgiving that your Holy Spirit will be with Devin and the work of his hands. We pray that you would help our hearts be attentive and our minds open to hearing the uh, teaching of this passage and we pray that you would be mightily glorified through it. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. I am tired. Joe is correct. Today, the hearts of men and women are more broken in searching than any dare imagine or admit. But this morning, I want to share that there is an answer for that. But in this day, we have the opportunities to build up beautiful kingdoms around our hearts to mask and ignore that which is dead and decaying on the inside. In our culture, many are choosing that which blinds us to the true needs of our hearts. A few weeks ago, uh, I had a sermon about money. This was supposed to follow that. Uh, it's a little, like Mary Kay said, out, out of... Um, the structure, but someone came up to me after and shared one of the best sermon analogies, and I have to share it with you. It's not mine, but it's good. Um, this person purchased this beautiful home, they told me, and they invested all this money into it, uh, building it up. They put new paint on it, uh, beautiful landscaping, a fresh, modern, new look. And just a few weeks ago, uh, he learned that inside the walls, the house is infested with termites. 
beautiful on the outside, but decaying and eroding on the inside. And even though he said it looks amazing, if what is dead on the inside is not dealt with, the entire house is going to crumble and he could never sell it. We cannot continue to ignore that which is broken on the inside, especially on the inside of us. And that is what this passage is all about. Uh, Here at Grace, we're continuing this series on the life of Jesus. And this morning, we come to a very interesting text. In fact, at first glance, it's a very confusing text. And even after thinking and praying, I've been thinking and praying about this passage for over two months, and I still find it very confusing. Uh, But I am confident that there is something very rich and deep here um, that God wants for our hearts today. And, And I'm confident that something our hearts should learn is in here and uh, maybe be reminded of or maybe jolt us back to life with him. And so uh, these verses are, are, uh, we're considering this morning are sandwiched between, is sandwiched between two parables. Uh, Paul preached on the second one. I preached on the first one about money. Um, and what Jesus is saying here is part of a larger conversation that we need to take into consideration if we're going to understand this text. And like any good argument, uh, this argument here is one that began at a family dinner table. Anyone argue at the family dinner table? Uh, That's where this passage starts. Um, If you remember from where we started the series at the beginning of summer, um, it was a time in Jesus' ministry when crowds began to gather around him because he was performing miracles and he was speaking with authority about the law and prophets. And and he wasn't like the the, um, the Pharisees who who just talked with authority. He, He spoke as if he was the one who wrote them. He was different, and he, he was getting radical with his teaching, and, and he was talking about the kingdom of God as if he were bringing it, and he was. And so we read that these crowds gathered and, and that these people, uh, the people who got closest to him uh, were the social outcasts and the sinners. Remember that? The people who were considered ugly on the outside and, and broken on the outside, and they were told that so much that those people began to believe that they were broken but they also considered that on the inside of them as well. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but in the world today, people who draw towards Jesus the closest are the the ones who know that they're broken. That continues to be true. And and Jesus loved that these people drew near to him. And it says that he broke bread with with them. And uh, that is, he welcomed them to his table, which in that culture was like saying, you are my family. You... um, you are the people who are, who are coming into the kingdom of God, is essentially what that meant. And these are the people who will receive the blessing from God. And the Pharisees and scribes in chapter 15 saw the dinner table, the family table, and the people who were with Jesus, and they grumbled, they complained. And then Jesus began this very long response to that grumbling. And this passage is part of a long challenge to the Pharisees who were blind to the brokenness of their hearts. He began by telling three parables of three lost things, a sheep, a coin, and a son. And he revealed that God searches for and rejoices over that which is lost. And only the person who knows that he or she is lost and is found can humbly come to the table. And he was trying to show them that you are the ones that are lost, even against them. But instead of showing them that they are lost with broken hearts, he already did that, He offers two more parables to reveal the two reasons they are blind to their hearts. And they're the same blinders that we have from our hearts today. Money and religion. 
And we'll spend our time this morning discerning those two blinders in their failed promises, and we'll close with a promise that delivers. Jesus reveals the failed promise of money, the failed promise of religion, and he offers a promise that delivers the kingdom our hearts actually need. So first, the failed promise of money. After Jesus told the parable of the shrewd manager and suggested that the kingdom-minded people, those at God's table, uh, should release their grip on worldly possessions, the Pharisees were hashtag triggered, right? They're like, that's fake news, Jesus. They did not like that teaching at all. It was was one thing for, for Jesus to say, you're on the outside of God's kingdom, but to attack their possessions as a blockade to them in their relationship with God, absolutely not, they would say. They would suggest, my wealth is from God. I'm hashtag blessed, right? The fact that God has given me all this wealth uh, is these purple robes, this beautiful home, this happy life in this world. The Pharisees would say, this is the good life. We are in God's kingdom. How can you suggest that we are blind from getting it? So our passage today begins with their response to this. It says that they rebuked him. And and this wasn't the quiet, passive grumbling where this conversation began. This was them screaming at Jesus. Uh, They were mocking him. They were saying, who are you to claim that we have a money problem? You don't even have money. Uh, So the only other time that this word is used is at the cross, when when the Pharisees mocked him again and they screamed out, Who are you that says you can save others? You cannot even save yourselves. And it's that same idea. You're a nobody. And based on your appearance, the people you're at the dinner table with, your family, the town you came from, you know nothing about God's blessing. You can't offer God's kingdom or tell us where the good life is found. You don't even have it. They were furious. Now, I appreciate that at Grace Church, people do not scream out during my sermons. I really prefer the passive emails on Monday morning. <laughs> but this was the kind of response. They were yelling at him. They were, and when they did that, they were proving the fact that what Jesus taught about them was true. They were blind. They were lovers of money. And because of that, money and worldly, the worldly lifestyle they were living had blinded them from the real problems deep within And look at how Jesus responds. If you look with me at verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. He points out their blockade to the kingdom God wanted for them. It's the world. You have built up this beautiful worldly kingdom, but it distracts you from the kingdom of God that has come to accomplish changing your heart. And here's the thing. This is the same trap that money and worldly treasures sets for you today. Money and worldly possessions promise to satisfy, but they never do. And instead of fixing us or giving us the good life our hearts long for, they leave us unsatisfied and wanting more. And they do that simply by being a constant distraction from the real problem that is in your heart. All that is in the world that money can buy, though we think it is fulfilling our hearts, 
it actually blinds us from the fact that something is deeply wrong. A life in a life without God has to be filled and focused on money and worldly possessions because it has to avoid contemplating the broken heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it best in this quote, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world, but we're distracted from that. The world makes a promise that it can satisfy it, satisfy us, and we believe it. And money and worldly possessions are like drugs in this way. We get a little, and it distracts us from the deeper problems. Then that little isn't enough, so we need more, then more, then more, and it distracts for a while, but doesn't fix what is dead and broken on the inside. And God, it says, he abhors that attitude with money, not because he abhors the person who is rich and, and decorated on the outside, but because he loves the person and he cannot stand to watch them choose something so much less than what they were made for. If you have ever known an addict, you know what this feels like. You know what God feels like. You abhor drug use because you love the person. You know the drugs can't fix that which is broken on the inside of them and it breaks your heart to see them constantly distract themselves by choosing that which is bad, and, and, and choosing blindness over healing. Now, it's easy to ponder this stuff and say, yeah, I know people like that, people who choose the world, money, drugs, distractions, but I am not blind. But we have to be careful. If, if we're Christians, we have to be careful with that attitude. We passively choose distraction and blindness all the time because our culture has made it very easy, hasn't it? People have always had money problems, all of history, but never before has money and worldly wealth created tools to deliver um, blindness and distraction in such a way that we have today. We are being owned by worldly possessions without even realizing it. People who own expensive worldly devices that are in their pocket do not get better socially, mentally, physically, or spiritually. They get worse. In fact, the wealthiest people who give their, themselves and their children expensive technology with no oversight have increased anxiety, depression, and suicide rates. People in the world today never have to think deeply about the fact that something might be wrong with them because the worldly possessions literally speak to them, telling them otherwise but it isn't fixing them, it's distracting them, and it's also blinding them. And so we Christians are like, yeah, smartphones are bad, the internet is awful, the world is, is doomed, the next generation is doomed. And then we go home and we scroll for hours on the news, we think about the stock market, we watch the news, Netflix, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, we passively end up doing very similar things for the people that we judge them for. Now, I'm not saying that the world is bad and we can't you know, be a part of that stuff. Religion has its own downfalls, um, but we can't be hypocrites. Money and worldly possessions are not a problem for secular people. They are a problem. Money blinds. The world money provides blinds. But this passage also says that God is not blind. He sees your heart 
and he has a promise that delivers better than money in the world. So two, there's another failed promise, the failed promise of religion. And so Jesus continues because he knew that the Pharisees had another problem, another blockade to seeing their hearts. And he says it in verse 16, if you'd read that with me. The law and the prophets were before John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You see, Jesus moves from money to religion because the Pharisees would have used the law and their religion to justify themselves about their possessions. The prosperity gospel is nothing new. Okay, They would say, look at the law. We keep the law. We keep, um, because we keep God's uh, law, God blesses us in the world. This money, these things are blessings. We are blessed. We are in the kingdom now and destined for the kingdom of the future because we are doing what God wants. And here lies the trap of religion. And just like worldly possessions, it is the same trap that is set for you today. Religion recognizes a need for God, but it blinds us from how broken our hearts actually are, and it blinds us from our inability to get to God on our own. Religion promises we can fix our hearts for God if we follow and abide uh, by the law. We, We will find and create the kingdom of God on our own, but we build these religious kingdoms that blind us from what our hearts actually need. It isn't surgery to fix us. It's a transplant of a dead heart with a new heart. We cannot fix our hearts. The problem of our heart is worse than we dare admit, and religion promises that we can fix that, but blinds us from the fact that we can't. You see, the Law and the Prophets are what we call the Old Testament, and the Pharisees memorized those texts. They were all about it. But though they knew the words and the laws, they didn't understand their purpose. They followed them as religion, but they didn't see that the purpose of them was to point to a relationship. They followed them to fix their hearts, but they didn't see that the Law and Prophets pointed to a God who needed to change their hearts. And in observing the laws of God, they remained blind. You see, it's ironic. They were blinded. They were blinded from the God who gave them the law. So Jesus was saying, these laws and these sayings you use all the time to justify yourself, you religious people, you don't understand what they actually mean. They're pointing towards a relationship with a saving God, and that saving God has come. But you are blind to the relationship because you've chosen to do it religiously. You see, the law and the prophets were not complete because every word, every chapter, every book ends with expectation. And if you don't believe me, read through the Old Testament. It does not treat itself as a finished book. It it never claims to be the end of God's actions or words. And, And the Pharisees acted like, this is the end, I have it all. But it always pointed towards a future hope of a God that saves, not demands, a relationship, not religion. Now, here's what Jesus isn't saying. Uh, um, I think when people, especially us religious people, we are religious, get triggered by that, right? Like, I, I love my faith. But here's what he's not saying. He isn't saying that the law is over and it should be rejected. He, he says not even a dot, which is the smallest dash in the Hebrew language, will be removed from the law. It's fixed and unchanged. 
but they are fulfilled in a person. They were not a structure to be kept to fix your heart. They were a signpost for your heart to point to a relationship with God who could fix your heart. Jesus suggests, I am the relationship that has come to do that. The law pointed to me. Um, and, And the law does something. You know, the prophets pointed towards someone better than themselves. David pointed towards a better king than himself. The law points towards something better than itself. And it pointed to Jesus, a savior who brings the kingdom. But the Pharisees just did not understand that. So Jesus used the law against them. He showed them specifically how their kingdom, you know, built up by their religious use of the law, was unable to provide what their broken hearts needed from God, a relationship. And and not just any relationship, they needed a marriage, a person who makes and keeps a, a pledge to love and serve your heart forever, even though your heart is wandering and broken and in need. And so three, there's a promise here that delivers. Uh, Jesus closes his thought with, with what seems like this random verse about divorce, but I don't think it's that random. Jesus was pointing out not just how they had, He says in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You cannot talk about this text by saying this. We should never read a Bible verse. We should never we need to read a Bible verse. We should read Bible verses. This verse is not Jesus teaching simply about divorce. It's Jesus using a teaching about divorce to show people that they are misusing the Bible. Do you see the irony when people will take this verse and use this as law? It's a teaching about divorce. It is not Jesus' final saying about divorce. The Bible has more to say about it. Um, But here, what Jesus is revealing is the highest expectation of God's law concerning the most intimate heart relationship in the world. He is rhetorically suggesting if the law was enough, if religion was enough to give you the kingdom of God, the one your heart longs for, Here is the degree to which it would take to make that happen. Divorce isn't an option in God's kingdom. Jesus says it better in Matthew. He says, Moses gave you allowance for divorce because of your sin, but from the beginning, that was not so. God's kingdom does not have within it a context for divorce ever being a reality. And this, again, was a direct hit towards the Pharisees. They believed that their keeping of the law had built for themselves the kingdom of God on earth. But what they didn't realize was that what they were only looking for was to keep the minimum requirement of the law. And they were known for making the minimum requirement even smaller Right? Uh, Moses allowed for divorce for marital unfaithfulness. So the Pharisees wrote these texts in one of, I want to read you a quote from one of their texts at the time of Jesus. They said, a man is able to divorce his wife if she burns dinner. But right after that, it says a woman is really never allowed to divorce her husband. You see, the Pharisees used the law, they used religion to build around themselves the religion, the, the, the kingdom that they wanted for themselves. Religion allowed divorce and remarriage, and they used that to selfishly make their lives into the kingdom they thought their hearts deserved. 
But Jesus comes in and says, entrance into God's kingdom, the thing that will fulfill your broken heart, can only happen if you, if you follow the maximum requirement of the law, and you cannot do it. You can't even keep the minimum requirement of what your hearts long for. The law hasn't fixed you, and the way you use it blinds you from the only thing they, that can, the only person that can. But here is why else I think Jesus used the law about marriage and divorce. It wasn't just to show them where they failed to keep the law. It, it was to show them that the law pointed towards a marriage, in a marriage where divorce would never be an option. The law pointed towards a relationship. You see, throughout the Bible, God uses marriage as the best imagery to teach us about his commitment towards his people. Uh, he calls himself the groom, and he calls his people the bride. And he does this because he sees our hearts, and he knows what our broken hearts are looking for, a relationship. And as Lewis would put it, a relationship with a person who is out of this world. You see, proven throughout history by the fact that people often get married, the greatest things our heart is searching for, the reason some of us cover ourselves with worldly possessions and wealth, and the reason some of us cover ourselves with religious actions is so that we would be loved and secure in a love. Our hearts are broken because they need not self-care and not self-love, but total commitment and love from someone else. But Jesus suggests here, it is a love that cannot be found on earth from a person, nor is it a love that can be earned from a God in heaven. But here is the good news. It is a love that came from God in heaven to earth in a person to be freely given to you. Choosing the path of money is choosing to set your heart on the kingdom of the world and the world will disappoint you. Choosing the path of religion is choosing to set your heart on the kingdom of heaven, but on your own, you will never get there. Choosing the path of Jesus is humbly realizing that God's heart is set on you, and he wants to freely give you his kingdom. The world disappoints, religion fails, but Jesus delivers like a faithful husband who will never leave you. Don't be blind. Stop being distracted by the world or even your own religion. This is the good news of the kingdom, and it is being offered to you. Tell your heart to believe it. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we um, come to a text like this, and, and we are grateful that you don't hold us to the standard. Uh, well, you do. You, you held us to the standard, but you have delivered a way um, through Jesus to have freedom, to be entered into the kingdom of God, to be with you forever. Uh, God, we, we don't need to just refrain from the world or, or even just pursue things in the world to find um, what our hearts are looking for. We don't need to um, dig into our religion and be super religious. We need to seek you out and ask for forgiveness, ask you to change our hearts. Would you let this be a church? Would you help us to be a church that does that every day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.